Good morning. I'd like to draw your attention to John chapter 13 this morning, so if you would, please turn there. As you are doing that, I'd like to read a verse of scripture from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? It is important for us to realize that the subject of humility in the scripture is not something new to combat the arrogance and pride of the flesh and of man. In fact, it is the very lesson that we learn just in knowing that there is one God. Because when we realize that there's only one God who created all things, well, that's a humbling experience, to say the least. But when that God humbles himself and comes and takes upon himself flesh because man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and and, and cannot be rescued any other way, then then that says something even greater about the character of the God that we serve and the God that we love. We began our study of John 13 last week by looking at the first three verses that focused our attention upon the love that God had for his, his own, the twelve that were with him that night. But they stood in place of all who love the Lord and who have been taught of him And what becomes a great concern to us is that on that very same night, one of the twelve would betray Jesus. And that brings us even to a greater consternation, if you will, concerning that night that Jesus was betrayed. What would he do? What was his lesson going to be? Well, we'll read the first three verses again, but I'd like to read down through verse 5 and then continue on through verse 11 later. In verse 1 it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Trying to nail down a simple biblical definition of humility may become a Herculean task for us. Sometimes we know humility by what it isn't. Humility certainly isn't an attitude of aggressiveness or aggression, as it were. Humility has nothing whatsoever to do with arrogance. Humility is never to be seen as boastfulness, nor is it vanity of any sort manner, or kind. 
Humility is seen as the complete opposite of pride. And even in that, it is a fine line to consider. What I mean by that can be seen in the story of a church member, not necessarily this church, but the story of a church member who received recognition in his church for being the humblest man in the church. So they gave him a a pin to wear. Well, the following Sunday, he wore the pin to church. And they took it away from him for being proud. That didn't go over your head, did it? (laughs) Do you see the struggle with the understanding of what humility is? Is that how humility is sometimes perceived? You see, as soon as we think we're humble, we're not. Looking at it scripturally, humility can be defined as the lowering or abasing oneself in in such a manner to attain a place of lowliness. It is probably best then to understand humility by seeing ourselves not through our own eyes. That's the problem. But it's best to understand humility by seeing ourselves not through our own eyes, but through God's eyes. When we see ourselves through God's eyes and by God's perspective, it helps us to understand humility better. But before we can even do that, we need to understand that humility is grounded in the character of God himself. Consider that it is the Father himself that stoops down to help the poor and to help the needy. Consider Psalm 113, the whole psalm, made up of nine short verses. I'm going to show all of the verses to you so that you can see something of great importance to us. The first part of the psalm, the psalmist praises God. And, and, and we should indeed praise God for who he is. It says, praise ye the Lord. Praise, O you servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. But at verse 4, the tone begins to change a little bit. Not that it doesn't give praise to God, but it begins to reveal more of his character that needs to be praised. The Lord is high above all the nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God? Notice, who dwelleth on high, and I want you to notice this, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He dwelleth on high, and he humbles himself. That's the character of our God. He raises up the poor out of the dust. Now, folks, remember, this is Old Testament. This is not the New Testament. He humbles himself to raise up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even the princes of his people. He maketh a barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. You see, there's no God like our God who, although he is great, humbles himself and lifts us up. Psalm 138, verses 6 and 7 expands that picture. Though the Lord be high, it says, yet has he respect unto the lowly. You know, every time I read this psalm, every time I read this particular verse, it's, it's, it's a tremendous conviction to my own heart. Can I be like the Lord who is high, yet have respect unto the lowly? It's a real character builder for us that that if we 
consider ourselves to be the children of God, yet we go out and we see somebody that's hurting and, and avoid them or get away from them because we don't like what the, the way they look or, 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 or we don't care for their needs. Something is wrong, not with them, but with us. What an example it is that God who is high respects the lowly. But the proud, it says, he knows the far off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, the psalmist says, Thou wilt revive me, thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. And we see in the very heart of this psalmist the fact that he's saying, I'm the lowly. I'm the one that needs to be rescued. I'm the one that needs the Father's hand to lift me. And then there is the only begotten Son of God who has exhibited humility for us from the manger to the cross. You think about the conditions of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Whether it be in a stable, a barn, or a cave of whatever sort. Nonetheless, it was a place where animals were. It was a place where a, a, a feeding trough that was called a manger that was made out of stone uh, cut out uh, to, to feed animals. And there our Savior was laid. And not in silk cushions and, and wraps, but in swaddling cloths, we're told. Swaddling cloths just being cut up pieces of cloth just to keep the baby warm. Humble beginnings for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All throughout his life, whether living in Nazareth or traveling through this through the many villages of Israel, one garment. Not a place at times to lay his head. And then the cross. Yet we hear the words from the heart of Jesus himself in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, calling out to all of us, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Such a wonderful thing to know that we have a God who has gone before us in all of the things that we ourselves will face. And he humbled himself to show us what our lives are to be on this earth until he comes. Meek and lowly. By the way, meekness is not weakness. And we'll talk about that in a moment. There was a time in the book of Acts that uh, the Apostle Philip was called upon by the Lord to go alongside of an Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the Word of God, in particular the scrolls of Isaiah. And he came alongside to bring some understanding to this Ethiopian eunuch what the Word of God meant. We're told in Acts 8, 32 and 33, the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. This is Isaiah 53 for us today. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. But notice verse 33, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Speaking of the Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. 
the expression of humiliation in his life, taken to the cross, taken as a sheep to the slaughter. But that is why he came. That is what that night was all about. We ended our study last week in Philippians 2, and I want to read verses 5 through 8, because once again we see what we need to take from this passage in John 13. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, the very statement that speaks of the deity of Christ. It says, but made himself, voluntarily made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. It was an act, an action of will. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And while we should know that humility is the absence of self and a bankruptcy of spirit, and I use those terms actually in a good way because you see, It reflects what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the Beatitudes, when he begins in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who come to the realization and acknowledge the fact that they are completely destitute of anything in this life, in and of themselves. When we acknowledge that in this life we ourselves have nothing, then blessed are we, for ours is the kingdom of heaven. Because the implication is that if we acknowledge the destitution of ourselves, we are acknowledging the fact that whatever we have, we have from God and from God alone. And so while we should know that humility is the absence of self and bankruptcy of spirit, it is important to note that a person's heart must match his or her posture. What is your posture in life? What is the posture of your heart as a servant of Jesus Christ, as a son or daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords? What is your posture as a believer, as a Christian? What is the posture of your heart Think about this for just a moment, what, what God himself says in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. This is God speaking of himself. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The contrite being those who acknowledge that they're sinners, who confess what they truly are in the presence of a holy and mighty God. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with those who are of contrite and humble spirits. A humble, meek, low spirit. Those who are humble, never claim honor for themselves. Those who are humble always have an unassuming, modest attitude. Now much can be said of the benefits of living the life of humility. The Bible speaks a lot about that. But can there be a more humbling experience than to be served by the humblest of all, Jesus himself? You see, in our text, he loved his own to the furthest extent, and he served them that night, his disciples, to the uttermost. Let's go back to verses 4 and 5 of John 13, where we're told that Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments 
Now, you just need to understand the time and the culture and the tradition of that moment. This was completely out of character for that night. That the host of this particular Passover supper would all of a sudden take off his outer garment, which didn't leave much else underneath except for, for probably a, a small undergarment. And he laid his garment aside. And he took a towel, which, by the way, is, is, is a servant or a slave's apron. And he took it and he girded himself with it, tied it around himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, water that was provided there. By Jesus' instructions, no less. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. And you need to understand that they were not sitting at a table that was designed by Leonardo da Vinci. A table like one that you might go out and buy at, at, at uh, Sam's, you know. Stands about maybe four feet high. No, the tables of those days were not tables of that sort. They were down to the ground, low. You sat actually on pillows around that little table, your feet kind of stretching out around the table. and You kind of lean next to the person to your right. And that was the way that the disciples sat around this table, from the host to the least. So when Jesus got down to wash the disciples' feet, he got really low because they were already low themselves. And don't start saying, how low can you go? Because Jesus went as low as he could go. And he washed the disciples' feet and then he wiped them with a towel wherewith he was girded. You see, there's an interesting pattern that uh, Jesus uses in teaching his disciples this particular lesson in humility. First, there is a demonstration. Then there is a declaration later. But here they were, all of them taking their places around the table and the customary service of washing the feet of the guests had not been done when they arrived in the upper room. In other words, there was no slave there to perform this function. And if there is a host, usually if they don't have a slave, then the host puts out the water so that if the, the, the guests want to refresh themselves, they could. But normally there was a slave that would do that. But none of that was done. They were already sitting at the table. Nobody offered to do what was usually done at a dinner of that sort. And we know that Jesus himself had, pro had, had provided all of this and, pro and prepared it all, even down to the fact that before they even arrived into Jerusalem, that Jesus went before them and arranged for there to be a donkey and a foal of a donkey, that when the disciples were to go and ask someone for it, it was already there available. Jesus provided it. And, and, and prepared for it, I should say. The same would go for the upper room, that Jesus made arrangements for there to be an upper room for them to have this dinner, for them to share it intimately with one another, to have water available. But there was no slave. But, in fact, there was. I pointed out last time that the disciples had been arguing along the way to Jerusalem as to who would take leadership positions in Christ's kingdom. 
James and John leading the race to Jesus with their mother there to lobby for them. Oh, that uh, they, my sons might uh, sit at the right hand and on the left of, 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 of you in your kingdom. And Jesus said, it's not for me to give that. But what we need to know is that that very night, before Jesus was to go to the cross, that very night, they were still arguing at the supper table. The Passover supper table, they were still arguing who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, I didn't point this out last week, but I want to point it to you now. Luke 22, let's turn there. Luke chapter 22. I start in verse 21, so you'll know they're already sitting at table. It says in verse 21, but behold, and this is, these are the words of Jesus. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Now verse 23 says, And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. They were inquiring among themselves. Another gospel account tells us that they were asking, Hey, who is it? Who is he talking about? What? Is it me? Some of, even, some of them were even saying, Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? If they had to ask, it wasn't them. You understand? Now it would be good if we stopped at verse 23, but look at verse 24. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. Jesus had already spoken to them about that before. We're not like the Gentiles. But now they were saying the very same thing. They were still arguing as to who's going to be closest to Jesus. Probably even at the supper table. John himself, as a matter of fact, we'll, we'll, we'll point out later, but John himself would, would talk about the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was talking about himself. That would be him. It would be him that would be leaning against Jesus. That's the picture of them at the table. And he'd be leaning against Jesus. So we now know something about that table. Jesus, as the host, was at one end. John next to him. And who's next to John? In another gospel account, we're told that Jesus said, whoever it is that dips his bread into the sop bowl with me, will betray me. The closest one, other than John, would have to be Judas. You begin to get a picture of the table. And yet they're still arguing. And if Peter was at the very end, at the other end, uh, Again, if we were to pull out all the gospel accounts, we would realize that Peter kept asking, hey, what did he say? What did he say? He couldn't hear because he was on the other end of the table. Or or he was deaf. Or getting there like me. And Peter was still struggling, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure he was still struggling with James and John's audacity to go and tell Jesus we want to sit at your right hand and left and don't forget what Jesus told him we, we, we mentioned this last time that uh, uh, Jesus actually spoke directly to Peter right after these kinds of arguments had, 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 had taken place and he told Peter Peter the devil wants to sift you like wheat but I'm praying for you all in, the, in that very same context of this argument that they were having as to who is the greatest in the kingdom. And Peter must have thought that he was. Why? Because he had been the one that was always mentioned with the other two disciples, James and John. Peter, James and John. Peter, James and John. Peter was always mentioned first because Peter, Peter James and John would be called away with, to be with Jesus in various and important places and times as the leaders.
But what the Lord was showing the men who would be carrying on the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ after his departure was what ministry is all about. This is what this night was about. For him to teach them that ministry is about servanthood. In fact, the word ministry, as we know, it comes from a Latin word. How many of you like minestrone soup? Nobody? Wow, okay, a few of you. Finally, y'all do know what minestrone soup is. Usually it's a kind of an Italian uh, vegetable soup. Yeah. Well, it comes from that very same word. It is what is served. What is being served today? Well, we're serving what we have. So I'm serving you soup. Minestrone. (laughs) Ministry comes from that very same word. It means to serve. Remember what we read last time in Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man, Jesus said, came not to be ministered unto, came not to be served, but to minister or to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that night, Jesus was very deliberate in his actions. He took off that outer garment, as I said, which was, which, which was usually taken off for working. Laid it aside because he was going to work. And he girded himself with that apron, that towel, and he took a basin filled with water and he lowered himself at the feet of the disciples to wash their feet and to remove the soil in the sand of the day. The creator of the heaven and earth washing the feet of the disciples, demonstrating to them what we need to do, serve others. What's around the corner in just a few hours? The crucifixion. Yet Jesus considered it of utmost importance to teach ministry. Self-sacrifice. Self-abasement. Lowering ourselves. What a contrast to their self-seeking and selfish ambition that they were demonstrating even at the Passover supper. But if loving his disciples to the end was being exhibited by the incarnate Son of God, then what does that say of Jesus then taking the feet of Judas Iscariot into his hands to wash them? What does it say? For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He, he loved the world so much. A world that for the most part did not love him back. A world that even to this day would rather not consider anything about the Son of God. He took Judas's feet and he washed them. He took Judas's feet and he washed them. No amount of washing, by the way, could remove the stains on those feet. No amount, which had already been compensated for a deed to be carried out shortly that evening. One moment, Judas's feet lovingly washed by Jesus. A few hours later, the feet of Jesus wounded by the hateful act of a greedy sinner 
Would we be so silent as Judas, while the Lord washed our feet, stained by the sin of the present world? Would we be so silent? Would we be so much without any kind of conviction or remorse? And so we've seen now the first principle Jesus demonstrated. So humility, first principle, humility is unannounced. You don't have to announce humility. You see, Jesus didn't say, okay, men, I am now going to demonstrate humility to you. That even sounds weird, doesn't it? You didn't have to do that. Humility is unannounced. Humility, like true godly greatness, does not consist of exaltation but it consists of self-sacrifice. It has been said that the branch that is most full of fruit bends the lowest. And Jesus was the most full of fruit. And he bent to the lowest extent. But there's a second principle about humility. And we see that in the next passage in verses 6 through 11, that humility is willing to receive without embarrassment. It is willing to receive without shame. We have to learn that from someone who decided that he was too prideful to let Jesus wash his feet. I think we know who that is. And then cometh he to Simon Peter, Once again, I have to believe that Simon Peter was the furthest one away from where Jesus was on the table, in the U-shaped table that they had. He cometh to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. In the best literal sense, what Peter said was, you will not, while I am alive, wash my feet. We sometimes have to admire Peter for being so straightforward. It's hard to say say that that any of the other disciples ever said no to Jesus, but Peter did a few times. Took him a while to learn the lesson not to. But nonetheless, this is what he said. He said, said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, "If, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Now, I'm going to get into a more deeper understanding of this next time. And we're just coming to the table of communion today. And I want to... I want to get this, this picture out to you, but, but Peter said, Lord, if you're going to do that, then just, just dump the whole bunch of water all over me. And give me a bath. Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you were clean, but not all. And notice in verse 11, John says, For he knew who should betray him, and therefore said he, You are not all clean. And I'll get, again, we'll, we'll get into the more deeper understanding of that statement next time. But we oftentimes wonder whether the disciples got the lesson that Jesus was teaching them. I can assure you that Peter did get it. Eventually, he got the lesson. And the reason we can say that is because when he now, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as one who is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write letters to the church, and he did two that we know of, 
in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 5, and speaking to the elders of the church, he says to them, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, in other words, not for money's sake, but of a ready mind. He says, neither as being lords over God's heritage. In other words, don't be in a position where you look down on the people. Don't condescend upon them as if you are better than them. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. The leadership is to be an example to the flock of servanthood. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he says, You shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Then he says, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud but, and, and giveth grace to the humble. Now that phrase, and be clothed with humility, can literally be translated, wrap the apron of humility around yourself. He had the same image and picture in his own heart and mind of that night that Jesus took his garment off and wrapped himself in the garment of a slave to wash the feet of his disciples. And he tells the younger, listen to those who are teaching you the word of God and wrap the apron of humility around yourself. Gird yourself with the apron of servitude. So if the leaders are examples to the flock of service, then those who are the flock are to serve as well. In the very very same manner, in the very same heart, with the very same attitude. That we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Not anyone to receive the applause of men. The plaudits of men don't matter to me. It should not matter to any one of us. All praise, all glory, all honor goes to Jesus Christ. All worship is to be toward him, toward none else and no one else. And that was quite a lesson to remember after being faced with that decision to allow the Lord to wash his feet. What a, what a lesson Peter learned that he carried that not only to his messages to the church, but even in his manner of death. For we know from tradition and even from Scripture that Peter would not die the way Jesus died. Though he was crucified, he made it clear that he he was not worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was crucified. Therefore, when they crucified Peter, he was crucified upside down. The table at which they sat for the Passover with Peter on the very far end of this short-to-the-ground table in the form of a U, sitting on pillows, leaning very much on each other. It took Peter a while to get the message, but he finally did. Both the message that there was a betrayer And that Peter himself could not exist eternally if he tried to save himself or clean himself or wash himself. Jesus said, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part of me. Now look at the contrast of two men, Judas and Peter. Both of them were ashamed. Judas Iscariot would leave the dinner eventually to point Jesus out to the Romans 
to take Jesus and arrest him. Peter, who told Jesus, we're not going to let him take you and do anything to you. Jesus told Peter, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Both of them were ashamed at what they did. Both of them cried out in their shame. Peter would eventually repent of his sins. Lazarus, or I should say, Judas Iscariot would go and hang himself. One terrible end. One great lesson learned. Peter, do you love me? Jesus would ask him after the resurrection. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Part of that feeding as we see in 1 Peter 5, is to teach them to humble themselves, to be servants of one another. A third principle that we learn of humility is that it is not a sign of weakness. I've oftentimes heard it said that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. And if there was a good example of meekness in that respect, it was Jesus and only Jesus himself who said that he himself was meek and lowly. But his meekness was not weakness in that Jesus stooped down, first of all, to wash the feet of the disciples. Peter resists Jesus, and that resistance led to Jesus rebuking him. You see, in many cases, we don't rebuke anybody. Yet, Scripture tells us that we, with the Word of God, can rebuke and exhort with long-suffering and doctrine. So we can still be meek and humble. But we need to get the message across. Lastly, humility never plays favorites. Because Jesus washed every foot, every foot, including Judas's foot or feet. You know, he didn't come to Judas and also look at him in the eye like this, you know and took his feet and then took a rod or something and started beating them. While he washed the feet of the others, he beats on Judas' feet. Did he do that? Or, give me that bread knife. He didn't do that, did he? Every foot he washed. Because everyone has the opportunity to believe the truth. But Jesus knew Judas was there for that reason. The betrayal of Jesus was a fulfillment of Scripture. And again, we'll talk about these things when we get deeper into this next time. He has shown the old man what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? It is what we are to do as believers in Jesus Christ.
to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. But we need to be washed. We need to be washed. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? With my whole heart have I sought thee, O oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. We are cleansed by the washing water of the word of God. That is why the word of God is so important for us today. In the church, even still. This is why Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You take that list and you can apply it to the very fact that that, is the, that, that all comes out of the very root called pride. The pride of fleshliness, the pride of selfishness. To be in the depth of that kind of sin... But notice what Paul goes on to say, but after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. Kindness and love of God is Jesus. The kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared not by works of righteousness, which we have done, which Peter thought that he could do. You're not going to wash me, Lord. As long as I'm alive and I'm breathing, you're not going to wash me. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, Peter, you have no part of me. His pride had risen so much even in that very solemn moment and time. Not by works of righteousness, Paul goes on to say, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he, has, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us a abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that being justified by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Ephesians 5 tells us it is by the washing of the water of the word of God. It's also in Ephesians that tells us that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast. And there it is again. Humility comes when we have died to ourselves and we've let Christ live in us, the Christ who washed the feet of his disciples and who will say later, as you have seen me do, so do ye. What are we doing? as believers in Jesus Christ for one another. What are we doing to call ourselves the servants of the Most High God and servants of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? That we can lay before the Lord today when we take this bread and this cup. I ask our service to come, and as they come, I ask you to join me in a word of prayer.